0: They've been married for 30 years. He's a pioneer of Catholic lay evangelization, and she has a master's degree in theology. Put on the coffee and get ready to open the scriptures. It's time for Bible with the Barbers. Now, here's Terry and Mary Danielle.
1: Welcome. Welcome to Bible with the Barbers on this Friday, May 21st. Um, And it's actually the Friday before Pentecost, so we have Pentecost Sunday. The Easter season is quickly coming to a close. Pentecost Sunday will be the end of the Easter season here, so um, we thank God for this great season and we pray for the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. So we want to take a look today at the um, scriptures of the day, and um, we can ask the angels to join us here and and give us some light. Sanctus, sanctus, sanctus dominus deus Sabaoth benis Celia terra gloria tuo hosanna in excelsis benedictus qui venit in nomine domini hosanna in excelsis so the gospel of for friday of the 7th week of easter is from the gospel of john chapter 21 verses 15 through 19 after jesus revealed himself to the disciples and he, and excuse me After Jesus had revealed himself to his disciples and eaten breakfast with them, he said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Simon Peter answered him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said to him, Feed my lambs. He then said to Simon Peter a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Simon Peter answered him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, Tend my sheep. He said to him a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was distressed that he had said to him a third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, Feed my sheep. Amen, amen, I say to you. When you were younger, you used to dress yourself and go where you wanted, but when you grow old, you will stretch out your hands, and someone else will dress you and lead you where you do not want to go. He said this signifying by what kind of death he would glorify God, and when he had said this, he said to him, follow me. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Jesus Christ. So what do we have here? This is when Jesus had appeared to the apostles on the Sea of Tiberias, and they'd been fishing all night. And um, he's standing on the shore, and you know, children, did you catch anything? <laughs> you know? And and so um, John had recognized that it was Jesus, and Peter had jumped out of the boat. And now they've eaten breakfast, and and Jesus goes to Simon, and he asks him three times, "Do you love me?" And of course, it is the opinion, and it's been the observation of what's happening here by the fathers of the church and the doctors of the church, Jesus is giving Peter a chance to make reparation for his threefold denial. Three times he had denied that he knew Jesus. So now three times he will be asked to profess his love for Jesus. In English, we miss a lot of this passage because in English, we use the same word for love and, you know, like, you know, if we love, love, our wife or our husband if we love our brother or we love you know the, but in, in in the greek in the original greek in which the scripture the, the gospels were written in greek um except the gospel of matthew which was written in aramaic but we don't have the aramaic matthew but we have witness we have external gospel biblical evidence to there was an aramaic matthew but we don't have the, the, the we don't have the text itself but we do have the greek and in the greek of john greek has different words for the word love so when Jesus says to Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He's asking him agape, with agape love. Do you love me with a love that is a self-giving, self-sacrificing, a love that's willing to sacrifice itself, and you know that's not concerned with itself. It's not just about, um, you know, I like you, or I'll be friends with you, or whatever. And when Peter answers, Peter doesn't answer with agape. Peter answers with (laughs) philio. Filio Filio means friend. I I like you as a friend. I like you. And so Jesus says to him, you know, he's giving Simon a chance to make reparation, okay? And and he also, first he says, feed my lambs, okay? And then he'll ask him again. And then he'll, and the second time when Peter answers again, Jesus says agape, and Peter says filio, and then he says tend my sheep. And P- Jesus is talking to Peter, all right, and he's entrusting to Peter this task of shepherding. Now Jesus has already identified himself as the shepherd, right? He is the shepherd. I am, I am the good shepherd who lays down his life for his sheep. But he's willing to share his office of shepherding with the men that he chose to be the bishops and the priests of his church, to lead his people. God's people always need a leader. (laughs) We need a pastor. We need a shepherd. And Christ is the shepherd, but he shares that office with visible people here on earth that they will lead us to him. So getting back to Peter's responses, though, so twice now Jesus has said agape, Do you love me with agape love? And Peter has responded, um, Philio, Philio. And so finally Jesus says to him, Peter, do you love me as a friend? Philio. And Peter says, yes, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. You see, when Peter, when Jesus was coming to, uh, to his death, And before they went to the Garden of Olives, Jesus warns Peter that you're going to deny me three times. And Peter says, Lord, I'll die for you. And and he proves that. He would have died for our Lord that night had our Lord allowed him to fight to the death to protect him. But that wasn't the way. That's not what he was going to do. And so Peter had made this bold proclamation, even though everyone else will fall away, I'll never abandon you. And he abandons our Lord. And so now Jesus is saying, he's asking him for the highest form of love. Do you love me with the highest form of love? And Peter's, you know what? I'm not going out on a limb again. I, you know, I, I, I stepped beyond my bounds before and I fell flat on my face. So I know that I like you as a friend. And that's what I'm going to admit to. And that's what he admits to. But nonetheless, Jesus still gives him the commission to feed his lambs and tend his sheep and to tend tend his lambs. Peter is the one who's given this commission to, that Jesus is going to share with him his authority over the church, and that Peter will be the visible head of the church. And um, we have that the church, by the way, is the authentic interpreter of Scripture. Scripture doesn't interpret itself for us. We need someone to interpret it for us, Peter said there's no prophecy that's a matter... In the letter of Peter, it says there's no prophecy that's a matter of personal interpretation. In the Acts of the Apostles, when the Ethiopian eunuch is reading the prophet Isaiah, um, and Philip catches up with him, he says, Philip the deacon, he asks, do you understand what you're reading? Well, how can I, unless I have someone to interpret it for me? So what do we have? By virtue of the primacy, Peter and each of his successors is the shepherd of the whole church and the vicar of Christ on earth, because he exercises vicariously Christ's own authority. So love for the Pope, whom St. Catherine of Siena used to call the sweet Christ on earth, should express itself in prayer, sacrifice, and obedience. Okay? So it's not that Peter was the, the smartest or the most faithful or the most loving of the apostles. The primacy is a grace conferred on Peter and his successor, the Pope's. It is one of the basic elements of the church designed to guard and protect its unity, and it's given as a grace by God. Remember when Peter, Jesus asked his apostles, who do you say that I am? And who do people say that I am? And they tell him, and then they say, well, who do you say that I am? And it's Peter who speaks up, and he says, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And what does Jesus say to him? Simon, son of John, the same way he addresses him here, Simon, son of John, no mere man has revealed this to, me, to you, but my Father in heaven. And I, for my part, say, you are rock, and on this rock I will build my church. And so it is the, the gift of God. Just like when, when there, the apostles were choosing someone to pre- replace Judas, they pray and they ask God, who knows the hearts of men, whom he has chosen. Which one did you choose? And that was it. God chose Peter to be the head of the church. In, the order, in order that the episcopate also might be one and undivided and that the multitude of the faithful might be kept secure in the oneness of faith and communion, he set blessed Peter over the rest of the apostles and fixed in him the abiding principle of this twofold unity and its visible foundation. Therefore, the primacy of Peter is perpetual, in each of his successors, perpetuated in each of his successors. This is something which Christ disposed. It is not based on human legislation or customs. Okay? So it was given to Peter to be the head of the apostles, not just a head of honor, but he would have primacy of jurisdiction. And if you read the Fathers of the Church, it becomes evident that Peter and the successors of his successors, who were the bishops of Rome, did hold a primacy of jurisdiction over the church. And it's not like, um, how do you say this? It's not like human government, okay? The church isn't a human institution. The church is, is a divine institution. Jesus Christ founded his church, and Jesus Christ is God. This is God's family. This is his call, his, his assembly, Okay. And he wants to govern it, but he governs it through men. And he set up the way it should be governed, okay? And so Peter has a primacy of jurisdiction, but each bishop in his own diocese is supposed to safeguard the faith in his diocese. And he shouldn't have to be referring to the bishop of Rome all the time. No, he knows what the faith is. He has an obligation and the duty to safeguard the faith in his diocese. And he doesn't have to constantly look at Rome and say, well, am I doing it right? Am I doing it right? No, the, the bishops, it was only when two bishops were having a quarrel and, and there needed to be someone outside to decide, they would go to Rome. They didn't go to another bishop. You know, it, it, you know if the Bishop of Jerusalem wasn't agreeing with the Bishop of, of uh, Alexandria, Egypt, say, they didn't, they didn't go to the Bishop of Constantinople. They went to the Bishop of Rome to decide the question. You know, John Henry Newman once quoted that, to be steeped in history is to cease to be Protestant. You, if you actually study the history very carefully, you find out Christ only founded one church, and that church is the Roman Catholic Church, and that the authority, it does reside in Peter. and that's why we have to pray so hard for our bishops and our, our priests, and especially for our Holy Father, that they will faithfully safeguard and pass on the sacred deposit of faith. Christ gave us a sacred deposit of faith. Now, that you know, our faith has dogmas and doctrines in it that Christ revealed. They come from God. They're gifts from God to guide and direct us in the ways of union with God, okay? It, they're not optional. As a matter of fact, the fathers of the church compared the doctrines of the church to the seamless garment of, of Christ. Remember at the, 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 the foot of the cross, the Roman soldiers didn't want to cut up that garment that Christ wore against his own flesh because it was woven in a single thread from top to bottom. So if you cut it, if you tried to divide it, it all unraveled. And they said, this is the faith, the faith that Christ left us. And if you take out a single doctrine, a single dogma of that faith, the whole thing unravels. So although the doctrines and the dogmas aren't the essence of the faith, the essence of the faith is our faith in Jesus Christ and our personal relationship with him. Nonetheless, if we take out one doctrine or dogma, we begin to lose the whole faith. I had that experience in college where I had a class, it was supposed to be a church history class, but the very first day of the semester, the professor opened up the class by saying i'm not denying infallibility, but and he did that every single class, and it's like, well, wait a minute, shouldn't we start with the Acts of the Apostles or you know, build up to this? you know infallibility wasn't defined you know, but, but just because something wasn't defined until 18, the 1800s at Vatican I doesn't mean that it, the church didn't believe it. remember the the, 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 the The divinity and humanity of Christ, who Jesus Christ was, that he was a divine person with two natures, wasn't clearly defined and set in stone until the fourth century at the time of the Arian heresy, when the church had to clearly define it. So it's not that the church didn't believe in infallibility, but she didn't have to define it until it became a problem for the faithful, that so many people were disbelieving in infallibility that people were losing their faith because of it and that was after the 400 years after the protestant reformation or 300 years 300 years after the protestant reformation in the late 1800s the church finally had to define infallibility but and i didn't understand that i didn't understand that that's what was happening but father in, within 2 weeks that that class starting i was losing my faith literally and i'm like lord what's going on i haven't stopped praying i haven't stopped going to confession i'm still trying to live the moral life the way you 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 know but i'm losing i'm losing my faith I, everything i'm just becoming so non-Christian in my internal attitudes, and, and and it's like, what's happening, Lord? And I remember kneeling before a, life, a more than life-side crucifix in a chapel and saying, Lord, you shed your blood for me, and you're losing me. What does it mean to you? And I literally was desperate, but I prayed. I prayed, and I asked the Lord, I think I'm losing my faith. What, what, please, do something about it. And one night I was inspired to make a comment to Father Joseph Fessio, because it was at USF, the University of San Francisco, and he was one of my professors and the director of the St. Ignatius Institute, which I was a part of that program. And I was walking back from a class with him, and I made a snide remark about the church, defining infallibility when she did. And Father simply said to me, Oh, yes, Danelle, and Jesus Christ wasn't divine until the fourth century. I kid you not, the lights came back on instantaneously. And then the next day for another class, I read for, uh, there was another class I was taking, it was called Church and Sacraments, taught by Father Francis King, another Jesuit, a believing Jesuit. And in that class, in that book it said, and I'm paraphrasing, but if you accept the notion of the church as the mystical body of Christ, then you accept the visible structure of the church as divinely willed, not as something invented by God. And what did he mean by the visible structure? The Pope and the bishops with the priests. Okay, so you have the pope who is head of all of the bishops. And yes, he has a primacy of jurisdiction. And then you have all the bishops in their individual diocese, and then you have the priests helping the bishops in each individual diocese. That's divinely willed. And it all became clear. One dogma of the faith was being attacked. The infallibility of the pope and the pope having jurisdiction, primacy of jurisdiction over the church, that was being attacked every day in class, subtly. And it was whittling away at my faith. I was shocked. I was shocked. How easily we can lose the faith if we don't stay vigilant. So Jesus gave this to Peter, his primacy, and he gives Peter the opportunity to make reparation for his sin. Three times Peter denied him. Three times Peter gets to profess that he loves him. Peter will eventually die a martyr. And that's what Jesus says at the end of that passage, right? He says, you know, when you were young, you went about where you were and and you girded your own self. But when you're older, someone's going to come and put the, the belt on you and they're going to take you where you don't want to go. It was indicating the type of death that Peter, by which Peter would glorify God. And then Jesus tells him, follow me. So Peter is the head of the church. The Pope of Rome is the head of the church. And he has a primacy of jurisdiction. It's not just a primacy of honor. And God has given him that position. That was God's design. Just as in the Old Testament when God laid out his church, he set up priests. And, you know, God in his providence, God is God, I am not. I'm not the one who decides how God governs his church. But we have to pray and sacrifice for those who are raised up to lead us. And remember, Paul tells us to pray for our political leaders. How much more do we have to pray for those who lead us in the church? Because you see, we all have to live in this world, but we're supposed to live in this world as if we were pilgrims, on a pilgrimage, journeying toward Christ. And and if we forget that we're on a pilgrimage, journeying toward Christ, we might settle down and kind of say, oh, you know, it's kind of comfortable here. Maybe I don't want to go anywhere else. Maybe I don't want to go forward. We forget We don't have here a homeland. We have no lasting city. Not here on this earth. There's no lasting city. So we want to um, follow Christ faithfully, but let's pray for our Holy Father, and let's pray for the church. In the Our Father we pray, Father, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. Do we think about what it means? We want his kingdom to come. We want... And his kingdom is primarily a kingdom of him ruling over us in our souls. It's not an earthly kingdom. Okay, It's Christ reigning in each one of our hearts that he is truly the Lord and we will bend our wills to his and we will surrender our will to him. That we'll do whatever it is he wants us to do. And we're not going to rebel against him. And that we will follow him. And so... You know, the church right now is living through that time of Easter. She's preparing for us for Pentecost, preparing us to receive the Holy Spirit anew. Every year we have this opportunity to live that liturgical life of the church, which is kind of a reliving of the whole life of Christ, right? We start the liturgical life of the church in in Advent, in preparation for Christmas, and then we have the Christmas season, and then we go to the, the public life of our Lord, and then we go to the Passion of our Lord, and then we have Easter, where we have the birth of the church, and all throughout the Easter season, the church reads the Acts of the Apostles and tells us the history of the church, and then we have Pentecost, and then we go back into ordinary time, where again, we're meditating on, we're living with the church, the life of Christ, every year, in this liturgical cycle. And each year we're supposed to be growing closer and closer to Christ and be being drawn into greater and greater union with him. So the gospel reading for Friday of the seventh week of Easter, and that will be May 21st this year, which also happens to be the Feast of a Martyr. The martyr's name is Christopher Magallanes. And it's so funny because every time I see this, I remember when I first saw this, I was like, oh, my goodness, because there was a boy in my class at St. Christopher. At, excuse me, I went to St. Emedeus in, Lin, in Linwood, California, and his name was Christopher Magallanes. And I was like, oh, did Christopher die a martyr for the, for the faith? <laughs> I was like, oh, my gosh. what?" And, and, of course, then you look at the dates. No, Christopher Magallanes was one of the priests who died during the um, Mexican Revolution where the communists were, trying, were taking over Mexico and outlawing religion. And he was one of the priests who died. And he and his companion martyrs is what celebrated on May 21st. And Christopher lived from 1869 to 1927. And from his cell, he was heard to say, I am innocent and I die innocent. I forgive with all my heart those responsible for my death, and I ask God that the shedding of my blood serve the peace of our divided Mexico. And the church hasn't stopped being persecuted. You know, there are many places in the world it's still persecuted. And we need to pray for our persecuted brothers that they can persevere in, the, in faith, hope, and charity. Because when we're persecuted, the hardest thing to hold on to usually is charity. Because when someone's beating you up all the time, it's normal and natural, it's human to feel angry. But we have to say, Lord, I don't consent to the sin of anger. And I won't consent to the sin of hatred. With the help of your grace, Lord, I want to forgive my enemies. Remember the story of Immaculate left to tell, she was one of the survivors of the Rwandan genocide, and she tells that story, how she was locked in this bathroom with, was it five other women for three months, while, while people were hunting her down, calling out her name to kill her, and they had killed all her family members. And yet, afterwards, and she, it wasn't easy at first. There was anger, and there should be anger when we see injustice. That's not wrong but Lord, I don't consent to the sin of anger. And she prayed the rosary and prayed the rosary and prayed the rosary and finally the grace of God broke through and she saw, I have to forgive. And the reality is, is you know what, when we don't forgive, when we choose not to forgive those who harm us, it actually harms us. It destroys us. Because when we don't forgive, if I choose to hate one person in this world, that hatred is hatred. And it will destroy the possibility of true love in my heart. I won't be able to love even my own family after a while. We have to we, we need to forgive for the sake of our own mental health, for the sake especially of our spiritual health, for the sake of our own physical health. We have to forgive. Father John Hamsch had a great story. It was a woman she was in a wheelchair, and she came to him and she said, "Father, would you pray over me? I, you know I would like to be healed. I have a family, I have children." You know, I don't have a husband to support me. I, and so he prayed, and he prayed, and he prayed, and he said, you know, I think somewhere in your heart there's some bitterness. I, I think there's a blockage here to your healing. And she said, no, I've forgiven. I, her husband had abandoned her with, I, I don't know, was four children or six children. I don't remember the story real clearly. But, and he said, can I badger you for a little while? So he did. And, and after a while it came out, yeah, she was harboring a little bit of resentment in her heart. Toward her husband who had abandoned her with these children and made life so hard. And so when that came out and she was able to say, Yes, I'll give that up, she stood up out of her wheelchair and she walked. So the bitterness and resentment, it, it, no, and it, and it blocks our, most of all, it blocks our spiritual growth. It blocks our ability to be united to Christ. Jesus Christ really forgave us from the cross, He forgave every one of us. None of us. Did he say, nope, I won't forgive you? He's willing to forgive us, but are we willing to ask? And I remember once hearing somebody say, well, you know, you don't have to ask God for forgiveness. He forgives you. No, God is willing to forgive us, but we have to ask. We have to say we're sorry. We have to repent of our sins. Just as Peter, Jesus gave him that opportunity. Three times he had denied our Lord. Three times he was asked to profess his love in order to make reparation for the sin. We have to confess our sins and make reparation for them. Yet Jesus is willing. But our unwillingness to ask forgiveness makes it impossible for him to forgive us. So we don't want to harden ourselves in our sin. So we pray to the martyrs and we pray for the people who are persecuted and we thank God for all the graces and lovely gifts he's given us through the church And we pray especially for our Holy Father and the bishops that they will teach, govern, and sanctify the church in accord with God's holy will. And they will safeguard and faithfully pass on the sacred deposit of faith. And yes, there is a sacred deposit of faith. Those truths which Jesus Christ revealed to his church through the scriptures, through his own life, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit after the Pentecost where the the apostles received a fuller understanding of the things Jesus did while he was living among them. And so we want to do that, do all of that. And this Sunday is Pentecost Sunday. So I want to talk a little bit about Pentecost and the Holy Spirit. Why the Holy Spirit? Yeah. Remember that Jesus said something um, before he departed his apostles. At the Last Supper, three times he talks about the coming of the Spirit. And he says, if I, he said, I have to go. If I don't go, the paraclete, the advocate will not come. It's like, wait a minute. What's so, what's so important about the advocate? Why does he have to come? Well, he has to come. And I hear the music. I want to thank all those who are listening. Um, Thank you for joining us on Bible with the Barbers. This is a pre-recorded show, actually. (laughs) I'm recording it on Thursday, but hey, no problem. So. If you want to make a donation, call 877-526-2151. Please keep us in prayer. And thank you. thank you for listening. Thank you for sharing the word. We'll be right back. Don't go away.
0: Now back to Bible with the Barbers. If you have a question or comment, call 888-526-2151. Here's Terry and Mary Danielle.
1: Welcome, welcome back to Bible with the Barbers, and um, Terry's not with me, so my guardian angel and I are are hanging in here today, and um, we're we're doing, uh, because Sunday is Pentecost, so Friday, May 21st, this is the, we're coming to the end of the Easter season, beautiful season, and we want to talk about Pentecost and the Holy Spirit coming, and in the Acts of the Apostles we read, when the day of Pentecost had come, they were all together in one place, and suddenly a sound came from the heaven, like the rush of a mighty wind, and it filled the house where they were sitting. And there appeared to them tongues as a fire, distributed and resting on each of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem, Jews, devout men from every nation under the earth. And at the sound, the multitude came together and they were bewildered because each of them heard them speaking in his own language. And they were amazed and wondered saying, are not all these men speaking Galileans? And how is it that each of us hear them in their own native tongue? Parthians, Medes, Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus in Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia and Egypt, and parts of Libya beyond, belonging to Cyrene. Visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabs as well. And we all hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. And all were amazed and perplexed saying to one another, what does this mean? But others mocked and said, they are filled with new wine. Now the reading goes on, and beautiful Peter addresses the crowd, and he tells them, no, this is what you're hearing happening here is the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, and he gives them the prophecies, the prophet Joel. And in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit upon all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. yes, And on my men servants and my maid servants in those days, I will pour out my spirit and they shall prophesy. And I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the day of the Lord comes, the great and manifest day. And it shall be that whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. And Peter goes on to to talk about Jesus and how he died but rose from the dead. And that we have proof that he rose from the dead because the prophet David, speaking as a prophet, said, I saw the Lord ever before me. With him at my right hand I I shall not be shaken. Therefore my heart is glad and my tongue rejoiced. Moreover my my flesh will dwell in hope. For he will not abandon my soul to Hades, nor let his Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the ways of life. You will fill me with the fullness of gladness in your presence. And, he's, and then Peter goes on to say, David's tomb is still among us, but Jesus rose from the dead. His tomb is empty. And so we know that he was prophesying about the Messiah, that he would die, but he would rise from the dead. And this is what happened. And now he promised before he left that he would send the Spirit. He would send his Spirit. And so the Spirit of the Lord is upon us. And the Lord has anointed us as his followers, to bring the good news. And each of us, according to the duties of our state in life, are to spread the gospel. But we can only do this with the help of the Holy Spirit. So we should be praying. That's one of the, by the way, which you're supposed to be doing from, from Ascension Thursday, or if its Ascension is set out, celebrated on Sunday, we're supposed to pray intensely for the coming of the Holy Spirit, that God will pour out his Spirit upon the church. Because what happened when God poured out his Spirit on the early church? the spirit perfected love within them all fear was gone they went out and fearlessly preached about jesus christ even if it meant being imprisoned being beaten even if it meant dying they weren't afraid to die they were boldly proclaiming the gospel of our lord the same peter who on the night that jesus was crucif- was going the night before jesus was crucified was afraid to admit that he knew him would proclaim Jesus to the point where he would end up in prison and eventually end up crucified upside down. And the same for all the apostles. The only apostle who didn't die a martyr was John. But John stood at the foot of the cross. And John, they did capture John and they did boil him in oil, but he didn't die. So they exiled him to Patmos and and he died of old age on Patmos, the island of Patmos off of Greece. So God in his goodness pours out his spirit upon us to fill us and to to enlighten us. And there's a whole section in the catechism, you know, chapter three, I believe in the Holy Spirit. Um, it's numbers 683 through 774 in the catechism. And it just talks about the different, you know, the graces and, the, and what does it mean? Who is the Holy Spirit? And and um, it starts out, no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. God has sent his s- God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying out, Abba, father. This knowledge of faith is possible only in the Holy Spirit. To be in touch with Christ, we must first have been touched by the Holy Spirit. He comes to meet us and kindles faith in us by virtue of our baptism. The first sacrament of the faith, the Holy Spirit in the church communicates to us intimately and personally the life that originates in the Father and is offered to us in his Son. So no one can say Jesus is Lord except in the Spirit. See 1 Corinthians 12, 3. And Jesse tested this out one time when he he didn't really believe it, and so he was a guard in the prisons, and I guess it was uh, Richard Ramirez was in the prison where Jesse was a guard, and Jesse said anybody can say Jesus is Lord. I mean, they're just words. What does it mean? And so he went to him and he said, look, Ramirez, do you want, you want dinner from the sheriff's table tonight? And Ramirez was like, yeah, what do I have to do, officer? Say Jesus is Lord. He couldn't say it. He could not say it. And, and then it goes on. God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. And again, that's Galatians 4, 6. And so God is our father. And the Holy Spirit is the one who helps us to recognize that God is our father. Okay. Baptism gives us the grace of new birth in God, the father through his son in the Holy spirit. For those who bear God's spirit are led to the word that is to the second person personal blessed Trinity, the word of God, that is to the son. And the son presents them to the father and the father confers incorruptibility on them. And it is impossible to see God's son without the spirit. And no one can approach the father without the son. For the knowledge of the Father is the Son, and the knowledge of God's Son is obtained through the Holy Spirit. That's a quote from St. Irenaeus, and he's, he's pulling from Scripture there. He's pulling from Scripture. What did Jesus say at the Last Supper? This is eternal life, to know you, the one true God, he's speaking to his Father, the high priestly prayer, um, John 17. And him whom you sent, Jesus Christ, and he in that in that Last Supper discourse, the, the chapters um, 15, 16, and 17, 14, 15, and 16 of the Gospel of John, Jesus refers to the sending of the Holy Spirit and how important it is. He tells his apostles, it's good for you that I go, because if I don't go, the Spirit won't come. I have to go so that he will come. I will send him. So Jesus is sent by the Father, and the Holy Spirit is sent by the Father and the Son, To complete the work of the Son. The Son is, he's the Messiah. He is the one who took human flesh to himself to redeem human flesh, to raise it up beyond itself. Our humanity is now united to the divinity for all eternity because Jesus Christ is the God man. He's God who took to himself a human nature. So by nature, we're lower than the angels, but by grace, we've been raised above the angels. Because God became man. He didn't become an angel. And that's evident in the, in the letter to the Hebrews. To which of the angels did God ever say, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. No, it wasn't the angels. Jesus didn't become an angel. He became a man. The second person of the Blessed Trinity. His name was Jesus. Jesus of Nazareth. That's the name of his human nature. But he is one person, the second person of the Blessed Trinity, who has two natures. A divine nature and a human nature. And he didn't become Jesus until he was incarnate in the womb of his mother. Before he was incarnate in the womb of his mother, he is the second person of the Blessed Trinity, the Son of God, the Word of God. And so he sends the Holy Spirit. And it, the Holy Spirit awakens faith in us. He stirs up that faith. And he helps us to see the truths. Remember, Christ Jesus told his apostles, that the Spirit would lead them to all truth, and he would remind them of everything he had taught. It was the Spirit who would awaken in them all the truths that he had taught, because oftentimes they weren't capable of receiving everything he was giving them. And it wasn't until after his resurrection when he could further explain to them, and then the sending of the Holy Spirit, where everything is brought together you know, it's kind of like the experience I had. This is just, a, you know, analogies limp, and this one is really lame. But anyway, when I was in college, and I, I, I was in a great books program at the University of San Francisco, and all of a sudden, in my fourth year in that great books program, everything started coming together and making sense. And I was like, oh, no, I want to go back and redo it, because now I know. Now I'm getting, now I'm getting the full picture before I was getting little pieces of the puzzle and putting them together, and all of a sudden the whole picture was coming together, and it was like, oh, oh, wait a minute. And and that's when the Holy Spirit comes in our faith. He brings it all together, and then we go forward from there and continue to learn and to grow in in faith, hope, and charity, and to to continue to grow in the love of God poured out for us in Christ Jesus our Lord by the power of the Holy Spirit. So we have this great gift of the Spirit that that Christ is giving to us. And these chapters, in this chapter, excuse me, chapter 3 in the Catechism, talking about the Holy Spirit, um, you know, what does it mean? Okay, so no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. And that's from 1 Corinthians 2 eleven. Now God's Spirit, who reveals God, makes known to us Christ, his word, his living utterance. But the Spirit does not speak of himself. The Spirit, who has spoken through the prophets, makes us hear the Father's word. The Father speaks one word, that's his Son. But we do not hear the Spirit himself. We know him only in the movement by which he reveals the word to us and disposes us to welcome him in faith. The spirit of truth who unveils Christ to us will not speak of his own. So I hear the music again. We're coming up against another break. Thank you for joining us on Bible with the Barbers on this Friday, May 21st. We're talking about Pentecost and the coming of the Holy Spirit. Come, Holy Spirit, come. Come, Holy Spirit, come. Thank you for listening. Thank you for sharing this with your friends and letting other people know about Virgin Most Powerful Radio. Don't go away. We'll be right now.
0: Now back to Bible with the Barbers. If you have a question or comment, call 888 526 2151 Here's Terry and Mary Danielle.
1: Thank you again for joining us with Bible on Bible with the Barbers on this Friday, May 21st, the seventh, the uh, Friday of the seventh week of Easter. And we're talking about the Holy Spirit and the coming of the Holy Spirit because Sunday is Pentecost. And we want to prepare for that. We want to ask for the outpouring of the Spirit. We want to ask God to pour out his spirit upon us. And so we were talking about uh, the Catechism of the Catholic Church, and we were reading paragraph 687, the spirit of truth who unveils Christ to us will not speak on his own. And that's a quote from John 16, 13. Such properly divine self-effacement explains why the world cannot receive him, because it neither sees him nor knows him, while those who believe in Christ know the Spirit because he dwells in them. And that's from John 14, 17. So the church, a communion living in the faith of the apostles, which she transmits, is the place where the, we know the Holy Spirit. It is in the church that we know the Holy Spirit. And the church is transmitting the faith that she received from the Holy, the, Holy, the, Holy apostles, from the Apostles. And where does she transmit that? In the sacred scriptures that the Spirit inspired, in the tradition with a capital T, to which the church fathers are always timely witnesses, in the church's magisterium, which the Holy Spirit assists, that's the church's teaching office, the Holy Father and the bishops in union with him, in the sacramental liturgy through its words and symbols, in which the Holy Spirit puts us in communion with Christ in prayer wherein he intercedes for us, in the charisms and ministries by which the church is built up, in the signs of apostolic and missionary life, in the witness of saints through whom he manifests his holiness and continues his work of salvation. By the way, I remember when Scott Hahn was relaying, you know, his, doing his many talks and we were recording a lot of his talks back in the day when we were St. Joseph Communications and, and he said, you know, one of the best kept secrets of the Catholic Church are, this, are its saints. Catholics don't know the saints and don't talk about the saints enough, so people don't realize that, yes, the the faith that Christ communicated is still alive, the Holy Spirit is still active, and by the way, miracles still happen every day, not just the miracle of the sacraments. The greatest miracle in the Church, of course, that exists is, is the Eucharist, that daily on the altar, the priest, by the power of the Holy Spirit, the priest acting in persona Christi, with the Holy Spirit acting in and through him, changes bread and wine into the body, blood, soul, and divinity of Jesus Christ. No, man can't do this, but God does it through man. He uses men as his instruments. So then we have the joint mission of the Son and the Spirit. Paragraph 689, The one whom the Father has sent into our hearts, the Spirit of his Son, is truly God. See Galatians four six, Consubstantial with the Father, and the Son, the Spirit is inseparable from them in both the inner life of the Trinity and His gift of love for the world. In adoring the Holy Trinity, life-giving, consubstantial, and indivisible, the Church's faith also professes the distinction of persons. When the Father sends His Word, He always sends His breath. The, Ruach, the Spirit of God. In their joint mission, joint mission the son and the spirit the holy spirit are distinct but inseparable so the son and the holy spirit are not the same person it's two separate persons but they are inseparable to be sure it is christ who is seen the visible image of the invisible god that's christ but it is the spirit who reveals him so again what did we what was it we read no one can say jesus is lord except in the spirit We can only recognize Christ through the power of the Holy Spirit. And then paragraph 690. Jesus is Christ, anointed because the Spirit is his anointing, and everything that occurs from the incarnation on derives from this fullness. Compare John 3.34. When Christ is finally glorified, John 7.39 he can, in turn, send the Spirit from his place with the Father to those who believe in him. He communicates to them his glory, see John 17, 22. This is the Holy Spirit who glorifies him, see John 16, 14. From that time on, this joint mission will be manifest in the children adopted by the Father in the body of his Son, the mission of the spirit of adoption is to unite them to Christ and to make them live in him we are supposed to live in Christ and we're supposed to be living images of Christ to the world we're supposed to present Christ to the world and we're supposed to present the trinity the father son and the holy spirit and the love that they have for one another that's why the christians should be joyful should be loving and should be fruitful. We're always looking to bring more people to Christ. It's not about forcing people. It's not about using the faith to beat people up. I heard I heard somebody say that recently, that it's not about taking the gospel and beating people over the head with it. We offer them the gospel, but it will be most effective if we're living the gospel with our own life. If our life shows forth the life of Christ, This is why the saints are the best-kept secret of the Catholic Church. You see, the saints of the Catholic Church are those who are fully living the gospel. They are the ones who are fully keeping the teachings of the Catholic Church. They are the ones who embody the teaching of the Catholic Church because they live the gospel to the full. And it's not that dogmas and doctrines aren't important. They are important. Jesus Christ revealed them. And if God revealed them, we can't say they're not important. We have to have that personal relationship with Christ that is nurtured and and inaugurated by the Holy Spirit, that we have a personal contact with our God. We recognize him as Father, Son, and Spirit, but as an intimate, personal friend. And yet always that he is God. He is always completely other. And yet he draws us into his own life by the power of his Spirit, the mission of the Spirit, to draw us into the life of the Trinity to reproduce Christ in us. And we have guarding angels to help us with this. And we have saints to prepare us and and help us to live this. And the example of the saints, like St. Christopher Magallanes and his companions, who died during the the Mexican Revolution. They were part of the Cristero movement. And they died martyrs for the faith. And we have to pray for persecuted Christians, that they will have the grace of final perseverance, and that they will be able to say, I give my life to Christ and I forgive my enemies just as Stephen, when he was being the first Christian martyr, when he's being stoned. Lord Jesus, do not hold this sin against them. Lord Jesus, into thy hands I commend my spirit. That we recognize and realize that Christ wants all men to be saved. He wants them all to be saved. So we pray for them. We pray for mercy and forgiveness. That's why we encourage the chaplet of mercy, the the rosary. We pray the rosary every day so that we can be looking at Christ through the mysteries of the rosary so that his image can be reproduced in us, so we can become more and more like him. Through the power of the Spirit, we pray. And we should always ask the Holy Spirit to pray and to bring us, to, to, to come to us in prayer and to lead us in prayer and to perfect our prayer, to lead us to perfect prayer and to perfect love within us. And so Sunday is Pentecost Sunday. We're praying for the coming of the Holy Spirit, that God would pour out his Spirit in full upon the church to perfect love within us. And what happens when love is perfected within us? Perfect love casts out all fear. The apostles huddled in the upper room in fear after the the crucifixion of our Lord. And they saw him. Over the course of 40 days, he appeared to them. He taught them. And then he told them to go back to Jerusalem and to wait and pray. And they waited and prayed from the Thursday of Ascension until 10 days later, Pentecost Sunday, when the Holy Spirit was poured out upon them. And when the Holy Spirit is poured out upon them, they speak in tongues, and everyone there can understand them in his own language. And it is the outpouring of the Spirit But the greatest thing is the charity with which they speak. Jesus Christ is truly Lord. Yes, he was crucified. You made the mistake of not accepting him as your Messiah, but you have another chance. Accept him now. Receive baptism. And whenever they preach, they preach baptism. And in baptism, we're baptized in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, indicating the unity of the Trinity, that there is only one God, but there are three distinct persons in God. And the Holy Spirit and the Son are sent. They have a mission. The mission of the, Holy, the Son, the mission of, of redeeming us from sin, and the Holy Spirit of sanctifying us. So the Son has begun that process. He has paid the price, He has paid the debt. As they say, we owed a debt we couldn't pay. So Jesus Christ paid a debt He didn't know. And He takes to Himself a perfect human nature and raises that human nature up beyond the angels. Because now the human nature is united to the Godhead. We will never become God. There's only one God-man, that's Jesus Christ. But the Holy Spirit will make us living images of Jesus Christ. He will transform us and transfigure us into living images of Christ. And we have, there's just so much in the Catechism here, in, in all of these paragraphs, and I really hope that you will read this, maybe between now and Sunday, Begin Chapter Three of the Catechism of the Catholic Church, beginning with Paragraph Six Eighty Three, and then going on to um, where did I say I had it marked? And now I, yeah, the Pentecost. It's it's quite a quite going on to Paragraph Seven Hundred and Forty Seven. So the Holy Spirit comes. So because you are sons of God, God has sent His Spirit into your heart, crying out, "Abba, Father." Galatians Four Six. From the beginning to the end of time, whenever God sends his Son, he always sends the Spirit. Their mission is co-joined and inseparable. In the fullness of time, the Holy Spirit completes in Mary all the preparation for Christ's coming among the people of God. By the action of the Holy Spirit in her, the Father gives the word Emmanuel, God with us. Matthew 1.23. It's by the action of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. The Son of God was consecrated as Messiah by the anointing of the Spirit at his incarnation, Psalm 2, 6 and 7. By his death and resurrection, Jesus is constituted in glory as Lord and Christ, Acts 2:36. From his fullness, he poured out the Spirit upon, the Holy Spirit, on the apostles in the church. The Holy Spirit, whom Christ the head pours out on his members, builds, animates, sanctifies the church She is the sacrament of the Holy Trinity's communion with man. Well, my goodness, there's so much about the Holy Spirit that we don't know. But we thank God for His Holy Spirit. We ask Him to send His Holy Spirit. Come, Holy Spirit, come. Come, Holy Spirit, come. A holy Pentecost to you. May we all experience the outpouring of God's Spirit upon us. Let us prepare ourselves with confession and penance and and, um, going to Holy Mass. Everybody come back to church this Sunday. Come and pray for the coming of the Holy Spirit. We hope to see you again in another week on Bible with the Barbers. Thank you for joining us. Um, if you're watching us on Rumble, uh, you know, hit that plus sign down there to say you like this and share it with others. Thank you so much for joining us and those who are on the radio. And thank all those of you who support us with your financial and spiritual donations.